0: Once again, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me uh, to Amokyo Methodist Church. Uh, it's my great privilege and joy to be able to come and share with us the Lord's Word uh, today, this morning. Um, and uh, I bring you warm greetings on behalf of Trinity Theological College. Now, the passage that I'll actually be going through is found in our Bibles. I'll be taking it from Psalm 42 to 43. So uh, please allow me to read for us the passage um, uh, before I open us in a word of prayer From Mount Mesa, deep calls to deep, in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me saying to me all day long, Where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Saviour and my God. Psalm 43 Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the law. O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise Him, my Saviour and my God. Please join me in prayer as we come and listen to the Lord's word. Lord, we pray that as we come and as we humble ourselves before You to listen to Your word, please may the words found on my lips and the meditation in our hearts be right and pleasing before You. Thank You and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, like some of us here, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian family. So I was exposed to church and church culture at a very young age. And really, growing up in a church culture, one thing that I intuitively came to learn uh, was that there are certain illegitimate and inappropriate feelings that I should not have as a Christian. And one of them was this. As a Christian, I should not be feeling down or depressed or downcast. Put simply, not okay. In other words, it was intuitively impressed upon me that it's not okay to not feel okay. After all, feeling downcast is what people in the world feel. People who do not have Jesus and have no hope, they are the ones who would feel downcast. But for us who know the Lord and have Jesus, of all people, We should not feel downcast. And this was really further reinforced by songs that were drummed into my head from uh, Sunday school. You know that one? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart to stay. And the song goes on with different lines, including this one. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack. Ouch, right? It's as if to say that the devil who brings sadness and this feeling of downcastness can stay out of the picture because as believers, we have joy that is deep down in our hearts. Now, it's a good song. Uh, Please don't get me wrong, especially all the Sunday school and children's church teachers out there. It's a good song. And there is a certain truth to this song. But with songs like this that were drummed into my head, I grew up thinking that as God's child, I should constantly feel and carry around with me this joyful triumphalism. And feeling not okay is an illegitimate and inappropriate feeling to have as a Christian. Read Psalm 42 and 43. And one thing that you and I cannot miss is that the psalmist was feeling downcast. Even the most superficial and quick reading of Psalm 42 and 43 will reveal to us that the psalmist was not feeling okay. Downcast enough to allow this constant refrain to occur throughout both psalms, most likely written together as one collective piece by the same psalmist. And this refrain can be found in verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Saviour and my God. Now this refrain happens at Psalm 42 verse 5, Psalm 42 verse 11, and Psalm 43 verse 5. And in that way, I think it roughly divides these two two Psalms into three equal parts. If there's one thing that we can learn from this refrain, the Psalmist was downcast. In the midst of the Psalmist feeling this way, he tells himself to hope in God. Now, this phrase, hope in God, is in the imperative mood, meaning that the, the, the psalmist is like trying to psych himself. He's psyching himself up, yeah? or even commanding himself to hope in God. And he's telling himself, you can do this because God is your savior and your God. And the psalmist psychs himself to remember that there is therefore reason for hope and praise. Now, a closer look at the three sections will show us why the psalmist is feeling downcast. So firstly, the psalmist is downcast because he longs to worship God. Psalm 42 verse 1 to 5. The first five verses of Psalm 42 show us clearly that the psalmist longs for God and misses God's presence. How much? Enough for the first words of this psalm to be etched in the opening lines of another beautiful song, isn't it, that we sing very often. As the deer panthers for the water, so my soul long after thee. As much as the deer thirsts for water, searching high and low to quench its thirst, so it is with the soul of the psalmist. He longs and thirsts for the living God, the source of his life. Yet the very presence of God that he seeks so desperately for is what he does not have at the moment. The joy and pleasure of being in God's presence is what the psalmist misses and longs to restore. And instead of being surrounded by God's presence, the psalmist is surrounded by his tears. Verse 3. Instead of being surrounded by music and shouts and songs of praise, as the psalmist recalls leading the Israelites in worship as they ascend the hill to the Lord of uh, the Hue of the Lord to the temple (verse 4), instead of this, the psalmist is surrounded by sounds of taunting jeers. Where is your God? The first four verses of Psalm 42 and the heading of Psalm 42 actually give us a clue. To the possible background behind this psalm, the psalmist was very likely to be one of the sons of Korah. And straight away, we ask, "Who's Korah?" Now, Korah was one of the musicians from the tribe of Levi, and he was placed in charge of temple worship by David and Solomon. Now, given that this is so, the psalmist was very likely to be one of the descendants from Korah, who is likewise in charge of temple worship. And the fact that the psalmist can't do the very thing he longs to do which is to lead the Israelites in the temple worship of Yahweh and experience the joys of temple worship as they come before the presence of God. The very fact that he can't do this suggests to us that these two Psalms could have been composed or at least compiled as part of the Psalms during the exilic or the post exilic period. Now, that was the period where Israel as a nation because of a disobedience toward God, was taken into exile and captivity by Babylon. What we can see from here is that the psalmist is downcast because he longs to worship God. Verse, reason number two, he feels forgotten by God. Psalm 42, verse 5 to 11. In verses 5 to 11, the psalmist goes deeper in revealing why he's feeling downcast. And verse 9 goes straight to the heart of the matter. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? You see, it is one thing to miss and long for the presence of God in our worship of Him. But it is altogether another thing to feel forgotten and abandoned by God. But feeling forgotten by God is what happens when we are surrounded and overwhelmed by the challenges and struggles that life throws at us where we find ourselves tossed around by the vicissitudes of life like a small fishing dinghy threatening to break under the massive waves in a storm out at sea verse 7 deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls all your breakers and your waves have gone over me the psalmist is overwhelmed by the sense of oppression over him These powerful waters and pounding ocean waves are sweeping over him and threatening to carry him away with them. In the midst of the turmoil, even verse 8, the remembrance and knowledge that Yahweh commands his steadfast love, his hazard by day and his song by night to the psalmist. Even this thought is but temporary and fleeting for the psalmist as we see him crying out to God again in verse 9, Why have you forgotten me? I think in that sense, the psalm provides for us a very realistic picture of what it is when life throws all its massive waves at us, right? The storms of life have a way of getting us down, leading us to feel forgotten by God. And then there's a third reason. He longs to be vindicated by God and to return before the Lord's presence. Psalm 43 verses 1 to 5. And really in Psalm 43, the psalmist reveals yet another feeling. He longs to be vindicated by God. He pleads for God to defend him, for God to deliver him from the oppression of his enemies. Most likely, the psalmist is crying out for vindication for him and his people as they have come to be under the oppressive rule of the Babylonians and are taken away in exile. When you think deeper about it, it's true, isn't it? As God's children, at times when we are misunderstood by others, when we are under attack by others and deeply wounded and hurt by them, the one thing that we seek during those times is vindication, isn't it? We want to be vindicated by others, by third parties. We want even to be vindicated by those who have misunderstood us and who have hurt us in the process and for them to realize that they have hurt us and for them to apologize to us. That's what we want. These feelings of wanting vindication are natural feelings, natural expectations on the part of those who have been hurt. But the passage reminds us that the most important vindication that we should long for is to be vindicated by our Lord. And if in true openness and honesty before the Lord, we find his vindication and his vindication alone, that is enough for us. Even if third parties and the offender do not vindicate us, but if the Lord vindicates us, that is enough for us. It is at this point as the psalmist longs for God to vindicate him that there is a slight change in the mood of the psalm. Hope comes in. Now, it's not the scorching sunlight of a hot afternoon that floods the room. But rather, it's more like a small stream of light peeping in through the gaps of our window curtains at morning dawn. That's how the hope is. Driven by the thought of the Lord vindicating him before his enemies, the psalmist expresses his hope that he will one day return before the Lord's presence. He will once again return to God's holy hill and dwelling, the temple with its altar, where there he will behold the Shekinah glory of God, the visible manifestation of God on earth, and where there he will be lost in wonder, praise, and, verse 4, joy, the very thing that the psalmist lacks right now. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Hope in God, for the day will come where I will praise Him, for He is my Saviour and my God. I want to spend the remaining time that we have together thinking through some pastoral thoughts on how we can live out Psalms 42 and 43. And the first thing is to realise that feeling downcast or feeling not okay is a legitimate and appropriate feeling to have as a Christian. If Psalms 42 and 43 is scripture, and it is, and if scripture is the living words of God, and it is, and if scripture as the living words of God means that this is what God wants to say to us today, and it is, then we can say that what scripture says is equal to what God says. More specifically, what the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43 says in the way he says it, that is what God is saying to us today at this very moment. And if that is so, then feeling downcast is a legitimate and appropriate feeling to have as a Christian. As a child on our pilgrimage towards our final home, we will face life struggles and challenges. There will be seasons where we feel downcast, where we feel down, where we feel what many spiritual giants down church history have described as the dark night of the soul, where words fail to console us, where nothing seems to work in consoling us. During those moments, I want to say to us, No, in fact, it's more of what God wants to say to us through the psalmist. It's okay to not feel okay. It's okay to feel this way, to struggle with feeling down. See, God is not going to look at us and say, Edmund, why do you have this depressed look, this despondent manner before me? You should instead be exuberant with joy. Popular Christian thinking, our churchy culture might say that to us, but God, it's not going to say that to us. Extending this out a little bit further, what about extended periods of feeling downcast? What about what has now been established medically as clinical depression, where extended and prolonged periods of worsening sadness and feeling downcast happens because of a medical malfunctioning of our brains and our minds? In the same light, I believe that as God's people, we need to dispel myths that say that the Christian will never, ever be clinically depressed. Myths that go that a Christian is so protected by the joy of the Lord that he or she should never experience clinical depression. And if he or she is experiencing depression, then they need to have more faith, read more scripture, pray more, so that the joy of the Lord will dispel away all that depression. I think what we need to do as the church is to dispel such myths. That's why we need as a church to have more conversations about mental wellness, about how we can look after our congregational members, our leaders, and even our pastors who may be struggling with mental health issues. We need to develop a culture where we can share about these things openly and not feel pressured to maintain a certain impression of triumphalism and victory and success in our Christian lives or ministry as popular church culture tends to pressurize us to do so. And this brings me to my second pastoral point. How the psalmist worships God in the midst of his feeling downcast. And that translates to how you and I can worship God in the midst of us feeling downcast. It is by turning to memory and remembrance. Psalm 42 verse 4. In the midst of him being far away from the temple, the psalmist recalls the times where he led the Israelites in worship of God. Psalm 42, 5. Even as he recognizes he's downcast, the psalmist chooses to remember God. Psalm 42, verse 8. And what he remembers about God, more specifically what he remembers about Yahweh at this point, is that which has come to be particularly associated with Yahweh. And that is Yahweh's steadfast love. His, the Hebrew they call it, Hesed, that covenantal love of God that led to God choosing Israel, saving Israel, leading Israel into the promised land and promising to be Israel's God. At a time and moment where it seems like the very covenantal love of God is being challenged, the psalmist recalls God's covenantal love shown to them in the past. And that's what we need to do. At times and moments where we can't seem to see the loving hand of God at work in our lives, when we feel forgotten by God, that's when we need to turn to memory and remembrance of God's gracious and loving acts to us in the past. And here the memory and remembrance works in such a way as to steer our disposition, our response to the future. Here, our memory and remembrance of God's covenantal love in the past leads us to hope in Him for the future. My third application point. But what happens if we are so downcast that the intensity of the dark night of the soul is so strong and overwhelming that we are unable even to turn to our memory and remembrance? What happens if we are in such a serious state of clinical depression that we can't even mentally or emotionally process our memories and remembrance to position us for the future? What happens if we can't even do that? Well, I can tell you, at those moments, what we shouldn't do, at those moments, what we shouldn't do is to simply brush some pedestrian advice to the person to say, you know, what you really need to do is to read your Bible more, have faith, and pray more. Yeah. Yeah. That really doesn't help the person who is in a state of um, severe or, or clinical depression. The analogy is like, you know, you go into a dark room and you try to switch on the light, except that you can't. So you keep pressing on the light switch to the point that you get so frustrated that you hammer away at the light switch. But the light won't still come on. And it's because the light bulb has blown. You need to repair and change the light bulb. Only then will pressing the switch facilitate the light coming on. So when we tell someone who is clinically depressed to read the Bible more, to have faith and to pray more, it's like we are hammering away at a light switch. Nothing will happen. The person needs to have the beginnings of medicinal healing of their brains leading to their minds before they will even be able to process their Bible reading, their prayer, their memory and remembrance. So what happens in those situations when we are so downcast that we can't even turn to our memory and remembrance. That's when we need to borrow on the memory and remembrance of others. So I remember my wife going through a period where she went through a period of depression. That season was triggered by my sister-in-law's untimely passing away due to aggressive lung cancer. And what made it very hard was that my sister-in-law was not a smoker. And she was someone who loved the Lord intensely and was generous towards others. And my wife struggled. She struggled rationally. She struggled emotionally. How could you, God, take away my sister in this manner? And for a period, she struggled to go to church. She struggled to worship God. She struggled to open her mouth to sing songs of praises to Him. She just couldn't. I remember encouraging her to continue to go to church. I told her, I said, it's okay. It's okay. If you can't sing, you don't have to sing. If you can't listen to the sermon and you need to walk out, just do so. But just try to be there. And the reason for that? Let us, let your Christian brothers and sisters sing for you. Let others speak the word of God when you can. Let others pray to God when you can. Allow yourself to borrow the memory and remembrance of others. And all this time, the one prayer that I kept praying for my wife at that point was Psalm 73, verses 21 to 24. Allow me to read it for us. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me. glory. I kept praying this prayer for my wife, that in the very midst of her raging spiritually and emotionally, that God would be with her, that God would hold her right hand, guide her with his counsel, and lead her in his time to behold his glory. In times where we are so downcast that we can't even pray for ourselves, that is when we need to borrow on the prayers of others. Praise God that in due time, the Lord brought healing to my wife. By giving her the comfort that came from her picturing, and in fact, one might even say that it was through a vision that came to her in her dreams one evening. My wife was sleeping, and in her dream, she pictured her sister being with the Lord, beholding His glory and experiencing the full measure of His love and grace, free from all her sister's pain and suffering. And I think that 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 vision which the Lord graciously gave to my wife, together with her medicine, that was the start of her healing. And that is what happens, the fourth and final point. In the midst of us feeling downcast, in the midst of us turning to our memories and remembrance, or if we can't, borrowing on the memories and remembrance and prayers of others, like the psalmist, we are led to hope in God. And that hope for the psalmist panned out into a hope of being before the Lord's presence again. Similarly, that hope pans out for us into a final hope where we will see our God face to face. Where we will behold his glory. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now the Christian tradition always had a name for this final vision of God. They call it the beatific vision. Put simply, the beatific vision is the climax, the consummation of that which we have begun to do now. That is the beholding of God's glory. Under the the, uh, giant Thomas Aquinas, the beatific vision was conceived largely as a form of intellectual seeing that we shall know God completely as we know only in part now. And this perfected and completed knowing of God served as the beatific vision for Aquinas. It was really more in the hands of the British Puritan, John Owen, that the beatific vision came to be reformed. For Owen, the beatific vision is the beholding of the glory of God. And Owen saw that to behold the glory of God is to behold it in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is fully divine as well as fully human. This beholding of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, can only be acknowledged by faith now, but will one day be apprehended in its fullness in eternity. The beatific vision for Owen came to be not just about intellectual apprehension, the way it was for Aquinas, but it involves actual physical seeing and beholding. And it is actual physical seeing because the one whom we see at the center of the beatific vision is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his ascended and glorified humanity. Owen says this, and allow me to read from him. The body as glorified with its senses shall have its use and place at the beatific vision. After we are clothed again with our flesh, we shall see our Redeemer with our eyes. Then Christ himself in his own person, with all his glory, shall be continually with us. As a man sees his neighbor when they stand and converse together face to face, so shall we see the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you and I long for the day where we can stand and converse with our Lord face to face, as we do with our friends and with each other. It is this final beholding the glory of God in the glory of Jesus Christ that forms the final hope for us when we are downcast. It will be this hope that sustains us and that eventually sees us through the time when we are downcast, dark and prolonged as the night might be. Why so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Hope in God, for the day will come where I will praise Him and see Him face to face, for He is my Savior and my God. Let us pray. I'd like to leave some moments of silence where we can just take some time to ponder upon what we have heard from the Lord telling us this morning. We thank you and praise you, Heavenly Father, that your word to us is real, that your word to us speaks to us in the various situations that we might find ourselves in. And, O Lord, you know us far better than we know ourselves. You know the kind of stress that we or our friends or our loved ones have gone through um, and the whole world has gone through in the midst of the pandemic. And you know the stresses that have come upon us and uh, the kind of impact that it has on on our mental health. And Lord, we thank you for your word today. Your word that tells us, that assures us that it's okay to not feel okay. That we can come honest before you. That as we come, we can, we can recognize that this is uh, uh, a legitimate feeling to have as we come before you honestly that more than that, that we can turn to our memory and our remembrance. Or even when we can't even do that, that we can rely on the memory and remembrance of others. And all this time, you are leading us towards that great vision, that great day where we will see our Lord face to face. To that day we long for, O Lord, and we pray that you may continue to sustain us uh, in this journey as we head towards that final day. We thank you for your word to us. And we pray that your spirit may continue to take your word and minister it to our hearts. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.